Hello, I'm up to chapter 6 now, The Jump to Universality. This chapter is about a theme that runs through so much of David's work, universality. I can't get a grip on just how well understood or misunderstood or perhaps just underappreciated this particular concept of universality is. You don't hear it much. You don't hear of it much. I guess it is underappreciated, and I think this chapter really is, when it's understood well enough, provides an avenue towards the solution of some philosophical discussions. One of those would be the foretelling of the next chapter, chapter 7, which is called Artificial Creativity. And there the discussion is in large part about artificial general intelligence. But for now, what we can say is that, and I'll probably say this again in the next video, the key issue with artificial intelligence versus artificial general intelligence is that many people who are concerned about AI, the narrow sort, are concerned it will be better than us at everything possible. The argument goes like this. Presently, AI will beat humans at chess now every single time they play. And at many other games like Go or whatever else. AI, in other words, dumb computers, can beat us at mental arithmetic, at multiplying or dividing big numbers, or these days you can even go online and they'll do calculus for you, they'll do integration faster than you ever could, they'll find derivatives faster than you ever could. AI can beat us at driving now, it can probably make a better cup of coffee than a barista. So there is a long, long list of things that can be automated, in other words, things that digital computers or narrow AI can accomplish more efficiently than we can. Now the argument gets a little bit slippery because what some people then assume is if you create a future AI which can do every task that we can write a program for and program a single artificial intelligence, perhaps a robot, with all of those, then we have an AI with superhuman capabilities across all known capabilities. And then you've got an AGI that's a super intelligence, right? No, that's wrong. That's very badly wrong. The key capacity of a human being is solving problems we do not yet have an algorithm for. In other words, things that cannot be automated. In the list of all AI programs, there is not a program for tasks not yet thought of that could need automation. In other words, a creativity algorithm. What does that have to do with anything? That would amount to a jump to universality, the topic of this chapter. A universal algorithm would not be one that was a superset of all currently existing known tasks, but rather something much shorter, presumably. It would be an algorithm which could simulate any other algorithm. It wouldn't be a big long list of other algorithms. It would be able to simulate any other including algorithms for tasks not yet thought of. But you wouldn't be able to specify the output of such an algorithm because the algorithm would be creative. What it would do would be unpredictable. And that's what we are. We will come to that kind of universality towards the end of this chapter. I am getting ahead of myself. David begins this chapter, chapter six, and different to my other videos perhaps, I won't actually read directly from the first few pages of this chapter, with the discussion about different languages and different types of writing. Early kinds of writing used symbols that represented whole concepts, and the vocabulary was limited. Writing came after speech, of course, so people would have had a language, presumably, before they were able to write it down, sometime along before writing was invented, in fact. That language would have been universal. What it means for a language to be universal is that anything and everything that can possibly be thought or imagined can be expressed in that language. So I just want to emphasize that again. Universality is about the anything and the everything. And different kinds of systems might be able to accomplish a wide repertoire of different tasks, but until that repertoire of tasks becomes all-encompassing, infinite, everything, all possible tasks, it doesn't have universality. So language natural language that we use, and natural languages that probably existed well before English or writing systems existed, were universal in this respect. Now, some people might want to pull the brakes here and say, well, hold on, there's a whole bunch of things that we can't express in language. 
So I just want to make a quick distinction about being able to express something in practice and being able to express something in principle. So qualia are the most famous example, I suppose. Qualia are the subjective way that things seem. And if I look out my window right now, I can see the sky looks blue, um, but perhaps that blue looks different to me in the way that it looks to you. The differences in the qualia, our subjective experience of the blue sky, can't be put into words. But that's not a failing of the universality of language. That's simply a failure of our imagination. We haven't yet figured out how to conjure the language in such a way as to describe subjective states. It doesn't mean that it's impossible using language. It simply means we just don't know how. Problems are soluble, so one day we will know how to do this. Now, putting all that aside, early writing systems had a finite number of symbols that were essentially in one-to-one -one correspondence with a bunch of objects or concepts that people wanted to be able to write down. These are often known as pictograms or hieroglyphics. So a picture of the sun would represent the sun, and a picture of a crown might mean the king. But if there was no picture in that writing system for a concept or object, then there was nothing else that could be done except invent a whole new system. In other words, the number of symbols would proliferate. Such a system isn't universal because at any given point in time, there would be objects or concepts outside of that system which could not be represented by that system. Today, Mandarin speakers and others, including people who can speak Japanese quite often and people who can speak Korean quite often, use some traditional Chinese characters. The traditional Chinese script numbers in the thousands, as far as I'm aware. There's thousands of different characters if you want to learn to understand traditional Chinese. But it's rather fixed, hence the word traditional. Korean students, for example, at, at school, throughout primary school and high school, learn something like 1,800 different characters in order to be able to understand some of the language that's used in their culture. But Korean students also learn another alphabet, and it's called Hangul. And Hangul, being the Korean alphabet, consists of 24 characters. Now, if you don't know anything about Asian languages like Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, you might look at the symbols side by side and think that they are all pretty much the same kind of system, but in fact, you'd be very wrong. Korean has far more in common with the English script than it does with the traditional Chinese script. There are 24 letters in the Korean alphabet, there are 26 letters in the English alphabet, and you rearrange the symbols to literally represent any object or any concept that you can possibly articulate. And if you run out of words, you simply rearrange the symbols in order to invent another word. That's universality. So we have alphabets where no new symbols need to be invented. We just rearrange the existing ones to express anything we like. Or these things called logograms or pictograms, where you need a whole new picture, a whole new symbol in order to represent a concept or object. So the former, Alphabets are universal. The latter, pictograms, are not. Now, for what it's worth as an aside, traditional Chinese can be read while not actually being spoken by many different Asian people. Indeed, the first invasion of Korea by the Japanese happened in 1592, and the Chinese came to the aid of the Koreans. And at one point there, well, at a number of points, there were meetings of the Chinese, Japanese, and Korean. Neither of them could speak the other's language, but they could understand the traditional Chinese script, and this helped uh, the three factions communicate. Okay, back to the beginning of infinity. David writes about how early scribes who invented alphabets probably never realised the great advances they made beyond hieroglyphics. This chapter is very much a historical overview of significant jumps that have happened to universality in various domains. The first of these were, well, in fact, the first chronologically speaking was the jump to universality that happened evolutionarily, namely in the DNA, and then in artifacts of humans, including symbolic ways of representing language through to computation and finally uh, quantum computation. So let me begin my reading on page 127, where he's well into describing the importance of alphabets. So David writes here, it is sometimes suggested that scribes deliberately limited the use of alphabets for fear that their livelihoods would be threatened by a system that was too easy to learn. But perhaps that is forcing too modern an interpretation on them. I suspect that neither the opportunities nor the pitfalls of universality ever occurred to anyone until much later in history. 
Those ancient innovators only ever cared about the specific problems they were confronting, to write particular words, and in order to do that, one of them invented a rule that happened to be universal. Such an attitude may seem implausibly parochial, but things were parochial in those days. And indeed, it seems to be a recurring theme in the early history of many fields that universality, when it was achieved, was not the primary objective. If it was an objective at all, a small change in a system to meet a parochial purpose that just happened to make the system universal as well. This is the jump to universality. Just as writing dates back to the dawn of civilization, so do numerals. Mathematicians nowadays distinguish between numbers, which are abstract entities, and numerals, which are physical symbols that represent numbers. But numerals were discovered first. They evolved from tally marks, or tokens, or stones, which have been used since prehistoric times to keep track of discrete entities such as animals or days. Now, I'll just pause there. Don't we all remember in mathematics class throughout high school learning the tally system? I know I do, and it still goes on today. It's a remarkably bizarre part of the mathematics curriculum, learning these historical systems. David speaks not only here about tally marks, the very earliest ways of learning how to um, record the number of things, uh, as well as Roman numerals, a completely esoteric, bizarre um, system. I suppose the only reason for learning it now is when you see old buildings that have the age of the building recorded, or at the end of the credits in a television show, it tells you what year the television show or the movie was made in Roman numerals. So David goes through a lengthy exposition of the tally system, and then of the Roman numeral system as well. And he writes how the Roman numeral system never achieved universality. Now, it might have if vertical lists of Roman numerals have been permitted, where each new tier was something uh, in the vertical list like an exponent. Both Archimedes and Apollonius got close to inventing a universal system of recording numbers, but failed. Now, you should read those stories in the chapter. I think they're really, really interesting. David writes about how Archimedes probably did notice the universality of his system, but chose not to allow it for bizarre reasons. He discusses some of the reasons why, and then I'll continue on page 133. So on page 133, he talks about how Archimedes chose not to make his system universal for the following even more speculative possibility, he says. And he writes, the largest benefits of any universality beyond whatever parochial problem it is intended to solve come from its being universal for further innovation. And innovation is unpredictable. So, to appreciate universality at the time of its discovery, one must either value abstract knowledge for its own sake, or expect it to yield unforeseeable benefits. In a society that rarely experienced change, both those attitudes would be quite unnatural. But that was reversed with the Enlightenment, whose quintessential idea is, as I have said, that progress is both desirable and attainable. And so, therefore, is universality. Be that as it may, with the Enlightenment, parochialism and all arbitrary exceptions and limitations began to be regarded as inherently problematic, and not only in science. Why should the law treat an aristocrat differently from a commoner, a slave from a master, a woman from a man? Enlightenment philosophers such as Locke set out to free political institutions from arbitrary rules and assumptions. Others tried to derive moral maxims from universal moral expectations, rather than merely to postulate them dogmatically. Thus, universal explanatory theories of justice, legitimacy, and morality began to take their place alongside universal theories of matter and motion. In all cases, universality was being sought deliberately as a desirable feature in its own right, even a necessary feature for an idea to be true, and not just as a means of solving a parochial problem. I'll pause there. This is remarkable. It talks about how the tradition of criticism that the Enlightenment gifted us with must work in concert with these jumps to universality, not only in the ways in which a universal system of recording numbers might be, but universality across all domains, including, most importantly, morality. Morality shouldn't be applied differently to one person as compared to another, but rather everyone in the same way. That's the universality, where everyone is treated in the same way. Universality is important as a fundamental principle upon which so many of our intellectual domains rest, and therefore the ways in which 
problems will be solved. A roadblock is having rules that have arbitrary exceptions. The arbitrary exception to any of these fundamental universal principles are the very thing that is going to stop progress. And so when they're spotted, that's a great way to correct an error. If you can remove an arbitrary rule such that your system becomes universal, you're going to make progress. I'll continue. A jump to universality that played an important role in the early history of the Enlightenment was the invention of movable type printing. Movable type consisted of individual pieces of metal, each embossed with one letter of the alphabet. Earlier forms of printing had merely streamlined writing in the same way that Roman numerals streamlined tallying. Each page was engraved on a printing plate, and thus all the symbols on it could be copied in a single action. But given a supply of movable type, with several instances of each letter, one does no further metalwork. One merely arranges the type into words and sentences. One does not have to know, in order to manufacture type, what the documents that will, it will eventually print are going to say. It is universal. Okay, so this is just another example of universality in technology. Um, we have a system of being able to print books that no longer require us to etch into metal or to bang a piece of metal out with the entire page. Instead, all you need is type, movable type, little bits of metal, each of which has a letter on it, letter printed on it, and you would have many such letters. I appear to be explaining the blindingly obvious here, but it's important to understand the significance of such a incremental change, this incremental change of going from going from etching out the entire page on a piece of metal to instead, you'd think it's a small change, but it's a, it's a huge change because suddenly you get universality. You go from the entire page being etched onto a piece of metal, which then can be printed over and over again, to instead having individual pieces of metal with letters on them. And now you can represent literally any possible text that could ever be written, unlike in the first system. So I'm going to skip a little. In these discussions, um, uh, people talk about the, the programmable loom as well, which David mentions as well. So I'll skip that and move straight on to the history of the universal computer. And so I'm up to page 135 now, and David writes, The most momentous such technology is that of computers on which an increasing proportion of all technology now depends, and which also has deep theoretical and philosophical significance. The jump to computational universality should have happened in the 1820s, when the mathematician Charles Babbage designed a device that he called the Difference Engine, a mechanical calculator which represented decimal digits by cogs, each of which could click into one of ten positions. His original purpose was parochial, to automate the production of tables of mathematical functions such as logarithms and cosines, which were heavily used in navigation and engineering. At that time, they were compiled by armies of clerks known as computers, which is the origin of the word, and were notoriously error-prone. The difference engine would make fewer errors because the rules of arithmetic would be built into its hardware. To make it print out a table of a given function, one would program it only once with the definition of the function in terms of simple operations. In contrast, human computers had to use or be used by both the definition and general rules of arithmetic, thousands of times per table, each time being an opportunity for human error. Okay, and then um, David mentions in that um, part there that the difference engine um, was able to calculate or compute the results of different complex functions like cosines and logarithms. This is based on the work of somebody called Brooke Taylor. And if anyone does mathematics at university, they have to go through Taylor series. A Taylor series is a rather remarkable concept where you can take any old function that you like, it doesn't involve complex numbers, any old function that you like, and you can represent it as a series of multiplications and additions. And like I say, anyone who's done undergraduate maths has to go through many exercises repeatedly doing these um, Taylor series expansions, as they're called. Okay, so I'm going to skip the next short part. And David writes about how the difference engine was improved by um, someone making it programmable. Uh, Charles Babbage made it programmable. Um, and this new machine was called the analytical engine. And David writes... Babbage and his colleague, the mathematician Ada, Countess of Lovelace, knew that this machine, the analytical engine, would be capable of computing anything that human computers could. 
and that this included more than just arithmetic. It could do algebra, play chess, compose music, process images, and so on. It would be what is today called a universal classical computer. I shall explain the significance of the proviso classical in chapter 11 when I discuss quantum computers which operate at a still higher level of universality. Neither they nor anyone else for over a century afterwards imagined today's most common uses of computation, such as the internet, word processing, database searching, and games. But another important application they did foresee was making scientific predictions. The analytic engine would be the analytical engine would be a universal simulator able to predict the behavior to any desired accuracy of any physical object given the relevant laws of physics. This is the universality that I mentioned in chapter 3, through which physical objects that are unlike each other and dominated by different laws of physics, such as brains and quasars, can exhibit the same mathematical relationships. I'll pause there. Here's one of the most philosophically significant issues that David raises in both the beginning of infinity and the fabric of reality. It is one of the most contentious philosophical claims, even though it's true, that has been made over the years by many different people, from Babbage and Lovelace here, through to Turing, uh, through to David Deutsch and others. And that is this idea here, said in the sentence that I've just read, that David wrote, where the analytical engine would be a universal simulator. Okay, so able to predict the behavior and model, simulate, the behavior of any physical system. In other words, that includes biological systems. Biological systems are a kind of physical system. The brain is a kind of physical system. Now, unless you are willing to believe in supernatural explanations, then this tells us that computers are able to simulate, not even electronic computers, things like the analytical engine, can simulate the functioning of a human brain. And so they should be able to be conscious. Whatever consciousness is, it must be a property of brains, and brains are made of atoms which are performing computations, or at least the neurons are performing the computations. I'm going to skip a little bit more. And David writes up to page 137 now. Babbage and Lovelace also thought about one application of universal computers that has not been achieved to this day, namely so-called artificial intelligence, AI. Since human brains are physical objects obeying the laws of physics, and since the analytical engine is a universal simulator, it could be programmed to think in every sense that humans can, albeit very slowly and requiring an impractically vast number of punched cards. Nevertheless, Babbage and Lovelace denied that it could. Lovelace argued that the analytical engine has no pretensions whatever to originate anything. It can do whatever we know how to order it to perform. It can follow analysis, but it has no power of anticipating any analytical relations or truths. The mathematician and computer pioneer Alan Turing later called this mistake Lady Lovelace's objection. It was not computational universality that Lovelace failed to appreciate, but the universality of the laws of physics. Science at the time had almost no knowledge of the physics of the brain. Also, Darwin's theory of evolution had not yet been published, and supernatural accounts of the nature of human beings were still prevalent. Today, there is less mitigation for the minority of scientists and philosophers who still believe that AI is unobtainable. For instance, the philosopher John Searle has placed the AI project in the following historical perspective. For centuries, some people have tried to explain the mind in mechanical terms, using similes and metaphors based on the most complex machines of the day. First, the brain was supposed to be like an immensely complicated set of gears and levers. Then it was hydraulic pipes. Then steam engines. Then telephone exchanges. And now that computers are our most impressive technology, brains are said to be computers. But this is still no more than a metaphor, says Searle, and there is no more reason to expect the brain to be a computer than a steam engine. I'll pause there. And this is, uh, even though an unpopular opinion above philosophers, scientists, academics, people engaged in the debate today, I would still say it's the overwhelming majority of the man on the street who would say that, indeed, it's impossible for a computer to think in the way that people can. And that assuming that a 
what a brain is doing is a kind of computation is still a metaphor is is best thought of as a metaphor uh, I think there was a there's been an article that's been going around recently um, to this effect it sometimes appears in popular science articles and that kind of thing that the brain is doing something special that the brain can't possibly be a computer okay so let me reread that last bit and continue this is still no more than a metaphor, says Searle, and there is no more reason to expect the brain to be a computer than a steam engine. But there is. A steam engine is not a universal simulator, but a computer is, so expecting it to be able to do whatever neurons can is not a metaphor. It is a known and proven property of the laws of physics as best we know them. And as it happens, hydraulic pipes could also be made into a universal classical computer, and so could gears and levers as Babbage showed. By the way, we should just acknowledge the fact there that when David writes, um, it is a known and proven property of the laws of physics as best we know them, he proved that. Okay, so that's, that's his proof. Uh, he proved that the laws of physics, in terms of quantum, the quantum laws of physics, Okay, we just need to acknowledge something before we do move on. I'll just reread this section again uh, where David writes, but a computer is, so expecting it to be able to do whatever neurons can is not a metaphor. It is a known and proven property of the laws of physics. Pause there. Um, important to realise that known and proven property of the laws of physics was proven by David Deutsch. So that's the seminal 1985 paper where he shows how the field of computation, what was previously the mathematics of computation, if you like, was in fact a branch of physics because computers are made out of atoms. Atoms obey the laws of quantum theory. So therefore, there can be such a thing as a quantum theory of computation. So let's continue. David writes, Ironically, Lady Lovelace's objection has almost the same logic as Douglas Hofstetter's argument for reductionism, see chapter 5, yet Hofstetter is one of today's foremost proponents of the possibility of AI. That is because both of them share the mistaken premise that low-level computational steps cannot possibly add up to a higher level I that affects anything. The difference between them is that they chose opposite horns of the dilemma that that poses. Lovelace chose the false conclusion that AI is impossible, while Hofstetter chose the false conclusion that no such I can exist. Okay, so this is, this is also, I'll just pause there, this is me speaking. This is also, I think, the mistake of some uh, people who are fascinated by meditation and introspection, that on introspection, they can't find an I. Um, I first encountered this idea with the brilliant philosopher David Hume. And David Hume talks about that whenever he reflects on his internal state, he can find nothing but a perception. He has no perception of the I. He just has perceptions of everything else. Now, it is true that if you reflect on yourself, you don't find an I. But the inability to find an I isn't the same as demonstrating the I doesn't exist. It's exactly the same error as searching for God everywhere and assuming on the basis of searching your entire bedroom, your entire world, the universe as you know it, and being able to find God, that that is somehow a refutation of the fact that God exists. Now, there might be other reasons to reject God, but you can't form an exhaustive search. So your introspection and being able to, unable to find the I is not a refutation of the fact that the I exists. There are better reasons, a better explanation for knowing the I exists, namely that the human being is a universal explainer. Now, when you are introspecting and you're attempting deliberately not to explain anything, and this is what meditators do, to calm their mind and to clear their mind of all questions and to not contemplate anything and to notice thoughts merely as thoughts and not as part of oneself, they then conclude on that basis that because there is no sensation of the self, that therefore there is no self. That's a mistake. There's a whole bunch of things we might not have a sensation of, but nonetheless still exist. We exist because we are, we are universal explainers and we can explain anything. It's the potential 
of what we can do that gives us ourselves. We'll come to the remarkable explanation of what a person is towards the end of this chapter as well. It's a theme that runs throughout the book. We are intimately tied with the production of knowledge. We're intimately tied with the physics of computation. Okay? A human being is the nexus of these two things in, in, in large part. Um, let me continue. David writes, Because of Babbage's failure, either to build a universal computer or to persuade others to do so, an entire century would pass before the first one was built. During that time, what happened was more like the ancient history of universality. Although calculating machines similar to the difference engine were being built by others even before Babbage had given up, the analytical engine was almost entirely ignored, even by mathematicians. In 1936, Turing developed the definitive theory of universal classical computers. His motivation was not to build such a computer, but only to use the theory abstractly to study the nature of mathematical proof. And when the first universal computers were built, a few years later, it was, again, not out of any special intention to implement universality. They were built in Britain and the United States during the Second World War for specific wartime applications. Now I'm going to skip a bit about the history of ENIAC, the first uh, universal computer that was built using vacuum tubes. And David writes, after, after skipping a bit, David writes, it is a remarkable fact that, in that sense, that is to say, ignoring issues of speed, memory capacity, and input-output devices, the human computers of old, the steam-powered analytical engine with all its literal bells and whistles, the room-sized vacuum computers of the Second World War, and present-day supercomputers, and your mobile phone, I'll just add, and anything else that pretty much has a computer in it, all, David writes, all, have an identical repertoire of computations. In other words, they can do precisely the same thing. Some will just do it faster, some will do it slower. David writes, another thing that they all have in common is that they are all digital. They operate on information in the form of discrete values of physical variables, such as electronic switches being on or off, or cogs being at one of ten positions. The alternative analog computers, such as slide rules, which represent information as continuous physical variables, were once ubiquitous but are hardly ever used today. That is because a modern digital computer can be programmed to imitate any of them and to outperform them in almost any application. The jump to universality in digital computers has left analog computation behind. That was inevitable, because there is no such thing as a universal analog computer. I'll pause there and just remark that the next paragraph talks about error correction. And as I read through it, just keep in mind the parallel we have with computation and with epistemology. And I'd like to highlight the idea that as you listen to this, we think about how critical rationalism, the Popperian view of knowledge, is very much like a digital epistemology. On the other hand, opponents of critical rationalism, or all opponents as far as I can tell, reject the core idea of Popperian critical rationalism, that true epistemology, and try to substitute an analogue epistemology. Let's see why. So I'll just read this section from David, uh, and he writes, having just talked about analogue versus digital computers and their difference, it's impossible to have an analogue, a uh, universal analogue computer, he says, because that is because of the need for error correction during lengthy computations, the accumulation of errors due to things like imperfectly constructed components, thermal fluctuations, and random outside influences makes analogue computers wander off the intended computational path. This may sound like a minor or parochial consideration, but it is quite the opposite. Without error correction, all information processing, and hence all knowledge creation, is necessarily bounded. Error correction is the beginning of infinity. So pause there. That's, that is so very important. Popperian epistemology is digital. It's digital precisely because it gives you a binary choice between the things we know and the things we reject and no longer know or we know are false. Knowledge has that form. Knowledge allows for error correction. Variant, variant epistemologies, different epistemologies, reject that core idea the binary black and white distinction. 
between truth and falsity, the known and the unknown, and attempt to substitute in its place degrees of knowability, degrees of truth, degrees of belief, degrees of justification. This is where we get probabilistic ideas in epistemology like Bayesianism, that you can have a certain amount of confidence. But this is false. This is an analogue attempt at constructing epistemology. All of them can be rejected because what we need is not a focus upon how close we can get to the truth or how close we can get to anywhere, but rather a way of correcting errors, a way of identifying what the errors are and eliminating them and keeping what remains. That's digital. I'll keep going. Okay, so I'll keep going, but I'll just, I'll just skip past a lengthy part about exactly what the problems with analog counting would be. So I'm going to skip past that. And David goes through, imagine a goat herd who's trying to tally up the number of goats in the herd by using an analog system versus a digital system. Uh, the, the errors accumulate in the analog system and eventually you end up with the wrong number compared to with a digital system where you can correct the error. And so we get to uh, we get back to comp computation itself. David writes, so all universal computers are digital and all use error correction with the same basic logic that I have described, though with many different implementations. Thus, Babbage's computers assigned only 10 different meanings to the whole continuum of angles at which a cogwheel might be oriented. Making the representation digital in that way allowed the cogs to carry out error correction automatically. After each step, any slight drift in the orientation of the wheel away from its 10 ideal positions would immediately be corrected back to the nearest one as it clicked into place. Assigning meanings to the whole continuum of angles would nominally have allowed each wheel to carry infinitely more information, but in reality, information that cannot be reliably retrieved is not really being stored. I'm skipping a paragraph and um, David writes, because of the necessity for error correction, all jumps to universality occur in digital systems. It is why spoken languages build words out of a finite set of elementary sounds. Speech would not be intelligible if it were analog. It would not be possible to repeat, nor even to remember, what anyone had said. Nor, therefore, does it matter that universal writing systems cannot perfectly represent analog information such as tones of voice. Nothing can represent those perfectly. For the same reason, the sounds themselves can represent only a finite number of possible meanings. For example, humans can distinguish between only about seven different sound volumes. This is roughly reflected in standard musical notation, which has approximately seven different symbols for loudness, such as P, M, F, F, and so on. And for the same reason, speakers can only intend a finite number of possible meanings with each utterance. Another striking connection between all those diverse jumps to universality is that they all happened on Earth. In fact, all known jumps to universality happened under the auspices of human beings, except one which I have not mentioned yet and from which all the others historically emerged. It happened during the early evolution of life. Genes in present-day organisms replicate themselves by a complicated and very indirect chemical route. In most species, they act as templates for forming stretches of a similar molecule, RNA. Those then act as programs which direct the synthesis of the body's constituent chemicals, especially enzymes, which are catalysts. A catalyst is a kind of constructor. It promotes a change among other chemicals while remaining unchanged itself. Those catalysts in turn control all the chemical production and regulatory functions of an organism and hence define the organism itself, crucially including a process that makes a copy of the DNA. How that intricate mechanism evolved is not essential here, but for definiteness, let me sketch one possibility. About four billion years ago, Soon after the surface of the Earth had cooled sufficiently for liquid water to condense, the oceans were being churned by volcanoes, meteor impacts, storms, and much stronger tides than today's because the moon was closer. They were also highly active chemically, with many kinds of molecules being continually formed and transformed, some spontaneously and some by catalysts. One such catalyst happened to catalyze the formation of some of the very kinds of molecules from which it itself was formed. That catalyst was not alive, but it was the first hint of life. It had not yet evolved to be a well-targeted catalyst, so it accelerated the production of some other chemicals, including variants of itself. Those that were best at promoting their own production and inhibiting their own destruction relative to other variants became more numerous. They too promoted the construction of variants of themselves and so evolution continued. Gradually, the ability of these catalysts to promote their own production became robust and specific enough for it to be worth calling them replicators. 
Evolution produced replicators that caused themselves to be replicated ever faster and more reliably. Different replicators began to join forces in groups, each of whose members specialized in causing one part of a complex web of chemical reactions whose net effect was to construct more copies of the entire group. Such a group was a rudimentary organism. At that point, life was at a stage roughly analogous to that of non-universal printing or Roman numerals. It was no longer a case of each replicator for itself, but there was still no universal system being customized or programmed to produce specific substances. Okay, pause there. So David's getting to how DNA itself evolved. This is a momentous event in the history of the universe. Once we have replicating, once we have DNA that becomes universal, we are able to have evolution of all the forms of life that we now have on Earth. I'll continue reading. David writes, Genes are replicators that can be interpreted as instructions in a genetic code. Genomes are groups of genes that are dependent upon each other for replication. The process of copying a genome is called a living organism. Thus, the genetic code is also a language for specifying organisms. At some point, the system switched to replicators made of DNA, which is more stable than RNA, and therefore more suitable for storing large amounts of information. The familiarity of what happened next can obscure how remarkable and mysterious it was. Initially, the genetic code and the mechanism that interpreted it were both evolving along with everything else in the organisms. But there came a moment when the code stopped evolving, yet the organisms continued to do so. At that moment, the system was coding for nothing more complex than primitive single-celled creatures, yet virtually all subsequent organisms on Earth to this day have not only been based on DNA replicators, but have used exactly the same alphabet of bases grouped into three base words with only a small variation in the meaning of those words. That means that, considered as a language for specifying organisms, the genetic code has displayed phenomenal reach. It evolved only to specify organisms with no nervous systems, no ability to move or exert forces, no internal organs, and no sense organs, whose lifestyle consisted of little more than synthesizing their own structural constituents and then dividing into two. And yet the same language today specifies the hardware and software for countless multicellular behaviors that had no close analog in those organisms, such as running and flying and breathing and mating and recognizing predators and prey. It also specifies engineering structures such as wings and teeth and nanotechnology such as immune systems and even a brain that is capable of explaining quasars, designing other organisms from scratch and wondering why it exists. I'll pause there. Now, I don't know if this is a well-understood area of biology. I don't think that it is. Exactly how... The DNA molecule is able to contain information sufficient to describe not only bacteria, but everything through to a human being and a dinosaur and flying things and swimming things. It's rather remarkable. It has this kind of phenomenal reach, as David said, in order to, if in the, 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 the space of all possible organisms that exist, it seems to have universality. All organisms that can be built out of the organic material that you and I are built out of. Okay, but then David talks about how early on on planet Earth, the evolution of DNA led to the uh, evolution of simple bacteria, archaea, uh, these things that lived in warm pools on the surface of the Earth most likely. But then for something like a billion years, a billion years, Nothing happened. Like, literally, just about nothing happened. The surface of the planet was covered in bacteria, but no multicellular organisms evolved. No plants, no fish, nothing. Why? Why was there no selection pressure? Why was this universality that was within the code, the DNA code, why was it not exploited? Um, David writes on this problem... Reach always has an explanation, but this time, to the best of my knowledge, the explanation is not yet known. If the reason for the jump in reach was that it was a jump to universality, what was the universality? The genetic code is presumably not universal for specifying forms of life, since it relies on specific types of chemicals such as proteins. So, so pause there. So, of course, um, it, it's not universal for, you know, science fiction writers like to write about the possibility of having organisms made out of silicon. Well, DNA contains no silicon, so it can't be universal for all forms of life because presumably you'd be able to make, or perhaps, perhaps you could make a life form out of silicon. 
But in particular, as he says there, um, our forms of life are made of proteins. So the DNA codes for different kinds of proteins or the genes code for a specific protein. Uh, and so unless the life form is made out of proteins, um, then the DNA isn't universal for all forms of life. But maybe it's universal for all forms of life made out of proteins. David writes, um, uh, could it be a universal constructor? Perhaps. It does manage to build with inorganic materials sometimes, such as the calcium phosphate in bones or the magnetite in the navigation system inside a pigeon's brain. Biotechnologists are already using it to manufacture hydrogen and to extract uranium from seawater. It can also program organisms to build constructors outside their bodies. Birds build nests, beavers build dams. Perhaps it would be possible to specify in the genetic code an organism whose life cycle includes building a nuclear-powered spaceship. Or perhaps not. I guess it has some lesser and yet and yet understood. I guess it has some lesser and not yet understood universality. In 1994, the computer scientist and molecular biologist Leonard Alderman designed and built a computer composed of DNA together with some simple enzymes and demonstrated it was capable of performing some sophisticated computations. At the time, Alderman's DNA computer was arguably the fastest computer in the world. Further, it was clear that a universal classical computer could be made in a similar way. Hence, we know that whatever that other universality of DNA system, the DNA system was, the universality of computation had also been inherent in it for a billion years without ever being used until old Adelman used it. Sorry, Adelman. The mysterious universality of DNA as a constructor may have been the first universality to exist. But of all the different forms of universality, the most significant physically is the characteristic universality of people, namely that they are universal explainers, which makes them universal constructors as well. Well, we have to pause there, don't we? Um, this is amazing. And th this is, um, I think, one of the um, least understood but most significant parts of the entire book. It is a discovery of David Deutsch, a philosophical and scientific discovery. It's a moral discovery as well. I mean, it stretches across all domains. Uh, this explanation of what a human is, what a person is, I should say, what a person is. Well, humans are people, but all people share this, the universality of people. And there might be other things as well beyond this, but this is absolutely crucial to appreciate that any alien intelligence that we find, any so-called supernatural being, any artificial general intelligence that we find, it must have this capacity, this capacity to be a universal explainer, which means that anything that can be explained can be explained by us. And given David's discovery of how computation is a part of physics and you can have a physical system, namely a quantum computer, that can simulate the behavior of any other system and we as universal explainers can perform, we, we, we can do exactly what a universal computer can do. We can act as a Turing machine and a Turing machine can simulate any physical so the universal Turing machine can simulate any physical system. So this is a poorly understood area of physics, philosophy, morality, computation, this idea of what people are. <clears throat> people are universal explainers. A universal explainer is a, another level of abstraction above the universal computer. We can do what a universal computer can do. A universal computer doesn't really need to do much more than make marks on paper. And we can do that. We can make marks on paper. So we can do what a universal computer can do. Uh, beyond that, we can also explain stuff. <laughs> and an explanation is a kind of computation. But you can be a universal computer without being a universal explainer. Okay, the, the computer on which I'm recording this right now is not a universal explainer. But it's a universal computer. Now, what's needed for that extra step? We don't know. Okay, it's something to do with creativity. It's probably something to do with free will. These things are tied up possibly intimately together in ways that we don't fully understand yet. But this is a massive advance in the philosophy of what's going on. That people are universal explainers. So let me just uh, read this last paragraph 
Again, I'll read it in its entirety. The mysterious universality of DNA, as a constructor, may have been the first universality to exist. But of all the different forms of universality, the most significant physically is the characteristic universality of people. Namely, that they are universal explainers, which makes them universal constructors as well. The effects of that universality are, as I have explained, explicable only by means of the full gamut of fundamental explanations. It is also the only kind of universality capable of transcending its parochial origins. Universal computers cannot really be universal unless there are people present to provide energy and maintenance indefinitely. And the same is true of all those other technologies. Even life on Earth will eventually be extinguished unless people decide otherwise. Only people can rely on themselves into the unbounded future. And that's the end. Terminology there, let's just read the terminology. Um, the jump to universality is the tendency of gradually improving systems to undergo a sudden or large increase in the functionality becoming universal in some domain. Okay, yes, so generally progress happens incrementally and this is what's happening in AI at the moment. So AI is having this incremental improvement, improvement, improvement. But the jump to universality isn't just, it's not expected by that, that it's not expected to just happen simply by virtue of the fact that you've had a large number of incremental improvements. What we need for that jump to universality from AI to AGI is a philosophical incremental improvement. And that's the mistake that people working in the area seem to not have quite cottoned onto. Now, David also mentions there um, that all of this, this human universality, is explicable only by means of the full gamut of fundamental explanations. And where do you get those fundamental explanations? The fabric of reality, which has just had the audio book recorded, which I would encourage everyone to get a hold of. Um, the fabric of reality, of course, goes through our most fundamental explanations of reality. And that's what's just mentioned there. So if you really want to understand the nature of a person, you should have some understanding of the theory of computation, the theory of evolution, quantum theory, and the theory of knowledge, okay, or epistemology. This was a remarkable chapter, and it's really leading us straight into chapter seven about artificial creativity, which is going to be a very exciting chapter, um, all about artificial general intelligence. So I look forward to seeing you again then. Bye-bye.